Oh, and you won't either after you hear this interview. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Today, we are on assignment and in Boston at the offices of the Cannabis Commission. The commissioner. This interview is actually with us here, and we are looking forward to talking with him, and we'll be using excerpts from this interview throughout our 18 hours of live streaming at the New England Cannabis Convention that's coming up next week at the Heinz Auditorium. Just a reminder that this particular podcast or vlogcast is available on demand on the Cannabis Multimedia Network. It is also on our a flagship affiliate, clnsmedia.com, and a video recording obviously is being done right now for the WeTube and also the Cannabis Multimedia Network. Steve Hoffman, thank you so much My for pleasure, joining Jay. us. And I, you know what, I, I followed your career. Uh-huh. Since you got appointed. Okay, right. The, uh, the, uh, the latest phase of my career. The latest phase of your career. I did a few things before I became the chairman of the commission. There, there was a company called uh, Rain, Rhymed with Rain, I think. Was it Bain? It was Bain and Company, correct. And I'm sure you're friends with Steve Paliuka. I know Steve well. I bet you I, do. Uh, I'm jealous of him. But his job's easier than yours, uh, now, isn't I don't it? know. Right now he's getting a lot of grief about the Celtics not being as good as everybody thought they were going to be, so I'm not sure how easy his job is right now. Just remember, he writes the checks. He doesn't have to make those decisions uh, on the Steve, court, right? Steve, He's a real good guy. He is a good guy. uh, I like him a lot. In fact, it was one of the last interviews I got to do at New England Cable News in 2009, or maybe it was eight, right after they had won. Right. With Wick. And yeah. uh, so I mean, yeah, Wick I don't know as well as Steve, but I know Wick. If you cut me, I do bleed green. They are my favorite Boston I, team. Can I just just uh, for the benefit of the audience sure. make myself even more popular than I might be already? I'm a Laker fan. <laughs> Okay, this interview's over. I'm uh, sorry, but I don't talk to Lakers. I, I, grew, I grew up uh, in Boston, and one of my childhood friends, uh, his father was a sports writer for the Globe, a guy named Hyde Hurwitz. Okay. And as a result, um, we got to go to everything. And I used to go every year to the finals, the NBA finals, and watch Jerry West and Elgin Baylor play their hearts out. And, and lose. lose. in the seventh game. And so I just started rooting for the underdog. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I get it. So you're kind of like uh, going against the flow, I see. Just because yeah, I just 
so badly, particularly for I mean, Jared Leslie scored forty five points. You know, and he played the same out. It just and look, wasn't enough. As much as I dislike the Lakers because I've been a Celtics fan since the 50s, 60s, right. since I've been young enough to remember. In fact, I saw Bill Russell play live more times than I saw Larry Bird play live. I don't know if I can say that. I saw Bill Russell play live, but I'm not sure more than Larry. Yeah, well, I mean, I was in Portland, Maine for 11 years of my career, so it was very good. But just to defend myself, so I am a very big Red Sox fan. Just to defend yourself. I, I, I went to college with Belichick, and I'm a big, I'm a big Patriots fan. So is that Wesley? Yeah. Oh, cool. And then uh, Rhodes fan from childhood, Bobby Orr. Yeah. Oh, of course. Well, he's still God, as far as I'm concerned, right? He still, he still looks like God. He looks like he's you know, still 20 years old. And you know what's amazing about him? I know you'll understand this, because you've met him a few times. Uh, no, I've not. My wife has. But really? really? Yeah, my wife has an autograph. But she has to give the, the, the flying the the fly fly picture. The flying picture. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Scoring when he goes against the Blues. Yep. She has that picture autographed to her. She didn't know what it was. And I have to explain to her the context. May 10, 1970. I mean, right. for those but, of us so who remember. I, I've never had the pleasure of meeting Bobby Orr. I'm going to tell you this about Bobby Orr. Everybody, and we, anybody who's seen him play, I can argue that he's the greatest hockey player of all time because he yeah, controlled he, the he, game he, from he, the defense. He, he or Gretzky. Yeah, well, Gretzky was an offense and didn't know what defense was. Yeah, but Gretzky was better on offense. No question about it, but Orr controlled the game I, from his I, defensive I position. I, could, I, could well, argue, I, could I like this, by the way. This is the kind of thing I, I don't like. know if your fans are going to like Oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's my show, my network. I don't really care. Um, but this is the kind of stuff that I like to do. He is a better person. A better human being. Everything I've heard about him than he, than I, he I was just, a great said, hockey player. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him personally, but everything I've heard about him certainly Fantastic. supports that. And I'll tell you the story about he threw me in the Charles River once. I'll be really? happy. It was okay. probably one of the highlights of my broadcast career, which tells you something about my broadcast career. But, <laughs> all right, Steve, let's cut to the chase. Okay. Um, Last night I was at a, an event with you, and I got to watch you in action up on a panel, yeah. um, and I enjoyed listening not only to your comments, but the, the, the comments in the room too. You have one of the toughest jobs in the state, and even the governor says to you, it is the toughest job in the state. And I, uh, I respect his opinion. <laughs> I bet you do. Um, do you have any regrets about this at all? No, no, I actually don't. Um, I uh, was looking at this stage of my career and my life to do something very different. I've been in the private sector for 40 plus years. I had a really good career. I'm really proud of it. I worked very hard, but I, was, uh, I had some good success. So I'm very proud of what I've done, but I was looking at the point in time when I got appointed here. I was looking for something very different where I could learn new skills, meet new people, uh, and probably most importantly, make an impact on something besides the bottom line of a company. And this certainly meets all those criteria. It's incredibly challenging um, and uh, incredibly rewarding because um, I am learning a lot. I'm meeting a lot of new people. Um, we have a great commission here, and it's just great to be part of it. And I, I, I'm proud of what we've done so far, although I acknowledge we have a ton more to do. Yeah, and you're writing history, Steve. I mean, is that a little, that's still not daunting? Is, oh, it, no, it, it's, it's daunting from day one. It's been yeah. daunting. I, I, I have a, a, a very high recognition of, of, of the degree of difficulty and of the degree of import of what we're doing. And I feel an awesome sense of responsibility, as do I think the other commissioners. Now, you said you just came from a, um, a press conference regarding... No, I, I wasn't there, but two of our commissioners, Commissioner McBride and Flanagan, were there. Thank you for making sure I get it right. Um, the rules about operating under the influence right. are probably, you know, there's always a degree of challenge here, writing the social consumption laws versus writing the, um, the operating sure. of the influence laws. Well, that's, that's the complexity of this. That's yeah. the complexity of it. Um, how challenging has it been to work with law enforcement? Because, you know, again, their jobs are to protect public safety, and there's so many elements of this that people still don't know. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's challenging. I, I, I think that we work with a lot of constituencies, law enforcement being certainly one of them, um, and they're all trying to do their job. Um, I, I think that from every politician, every elected appointed official, law enforcement, they all start with the same thing, which is, this is the law, whether they voted for it or against it, this is the law, now we got to make it work. And whether you're talking to the mayor of Boston or you're talking to the chief of police in Chelsea, they just want to make it work. And, and I think that's great. So you never, you know, there's no question about motives. It's just everyone's coming at it from a different angle with different perspectives. And we're trying to make it work across all of those different perspectives. And it's hard. But I actually respect the fact that everybody engaged in this is trying to do it right. And there's so much knowledge out there now um, where science and research and um, the examples of Colorado and Nevada and California and Washington, Oregon. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the depth of knowledge that I'm guessing you've had to kind of embrace, um, and it changes almost every day. It's like the news business. There's always something new sure. coming out. Yeah. That makes it exciting too, doesn't it? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think the degree of difficulty, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a masochist, the degree of difficulty actually really excites me. It really is hard. Um, we have benefited enormously from talking to people in Nevada and Oregon and, and Washington State, California. Um, but every state's different. You know, the laws are different, the demographics are different. So you can learn from others, but you can't just lift and shift. So I think it's great. You know, I'm going down, I think, on Tuesday to talk to Murat, because they want to learn where we have. I'm going next week to talk to the legislature in New York State about banking in the cannabis industry. So we all are learning from one another, and we're happy to share, um, and we're happy to learn. And I really feel badly for the guys in Colorado, because they didn't have anybody to talk to. No, um, they did. So, you know, even, even though our challenges are different, um, mm -hmm. you know, they've been incredibly gracious with us, but they haven't really asked for help. And, and um, of course, the uh, different states have different... It's, to me, democracy at work. I agree. And it, it's a fascinating thing. I actually used this at a public meeting. I said, uh, you know, this is democracy in its purest form. Absolutely. And then I quoted Winston Churchill, who said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all of the forms of government. <laughs> it is. <laughs> democracy is messy, but right. it's beautiful. And this we are living in. It's, it, it's really exciting. Last time I checked, it all started here in Boston, too, right? Right in that little thing in 1776. Tea party? Or yeah, that little tea party <laughs> thing, right. Um, and I'm going to guess that there was a little cannabis at that tea party, too. Uh, I, 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 I didn't read about that. I will history. reserve comment on that. All right, fair enough. But I think I read between the lines in my history books. Um, the first time that I had an opportunity to go to one of your initial hearings where you were putting together the rules and regulations, uh, I was blown away. As you know, I'm a sports guy. I always right. have been. And I'm a soccer guy, which is kind of a rarity, too, in this area, just because, you know, um, we are what we are. And when you made the reference to relegation in the English <laughs> airline, I, I will never forget it. It was such a surreal experience for me because I waved the flag for soccer right. in this town, helped right. bring the World Cup to Boston in 94. Bob Caporal, right. yeah. who was the head of Boston soccer, was a friend, and he used to come on my show. He lived in Dover. It was right. easy for him. Yeah. And I, you know, I was one of the few media journalists in the market to actually give the equal respect to the game. Right. And I knew how big a deal the World Cup really was. Sure. So, needless to say, I brought people on and we talked about it. And then you made the analogy about the relegation. Explain again how you got to that, because you have sure. told me this. Sure, story. I have a very good friend, my probably closest friend is South African mm -hmm. uh, by birth, and uh, he's been over, uh, over in the States now since 1980s, a partner of mine from Bay. Mm -hmm. um, and given his uh, background, he is a, an avid soccer fan, yeah. and over the years, and I've known him for a long time, he has tried to teach me about it. soccer, 
Um, and he's done pretty well on that. He's also tried to teach me about cricket. Don't have a clue. I can't figure cricket out. And he's yeah. also tried to teach me about rugby, which also I'm not so good at. But soccer, he's taught me about. And so I understand the British uh, system of relegation. And it just, I hadn't thought about it ahead of time. It really was, was for as long as we were having a conversation about how to make sure that people that had excuse me, cultivation licenses were actually producing and selling what they were uh, committed to do. And it just it just came to mind. This is just like relegation in British soccer, but I can't tell you it was you know scripted or that I planned on using it. It just at the time it just said, yeah, this is exactly like relegation. And and who knew that in a million years I would be in the audience right. listening to that and it would mean so much. Now, I was actually I, I went to my buddy uh, who's talking about soccer I said, Hey, I just made you famous. <laughs> That's great. And by the way, there's no such thing as a casual soccer fan. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> We're all avid. If my friend has any indication, that is certainly true. <laughs> all right. One of the biggest things that you've had to deal with um, as commissioner is the uh, fast and loose policies of the host agreements and the mm -hmm. various towns that have been able right. to vote in moratoriums or bans. Right. Um, I want to ask you about that. And um, do you think that you were given the right amount of power mm -hmm. in, in having anything to sure. do with these host agreements. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a tough one because uh, you know, Massachusetts has a long history of uh, municipal rights, particularly when it comes to things like zoning and bylaws and ordinances. So it's not surprising at all to me that the legislature try to find a balance between you know the state as the only regulatory body, but then giving cities and towns a lot of say in the matter. I think that's just consistent with Massachusetts history. Mm -hmm. um, whether they got the balance right or not, I'm not sure, but it's you know it, it, it was definitely an attempt to find that balance and to be consistent with the kind of history and culture of the state. Um, as you know, um, we have asked the legislature to clarify how much authority we have on this. Um, it's not clear to me um, and to um, uh, others on our staff that we do have authority to, we, we, we have the right to not give a license unless there is a signed community host agreement. It's not clear to me we have the right to say this is not a valid agreement or the terms are, are incorrect. And we've asked the legislature for clarity on this. I will. In, in defense, because there's some people who say, well, no, the legislation is very clear, um, and I respect that opinion. I will say that there's a case that just uh, is going on in, um, in Salem, um, where uh, somebody is, is challenging the city's decision to limit the number of uh, host community agreements that are going to sign, and we were brought in, um, not because we were accused of anything, but because there was potential that if the litigant won, if the plaintiff won, that they would get injunctive relief in terms of us not approving licenses from other applicants from Salem. Uh, the judge threw us out of the case, said we're, we're not relevant to the case, but he also, in his judgment, said there's there's nothing in the law that says that the Cannabis Control Commission has any say whatsoever in host community agreements. Now, that's one person's opinion. Right. He's a judge, so right. I, I take it seriously, mm -hmm. but that's why I, we just asked the legislature, just give us clarity. Um, I think there's an issue here. I don't think it's all cities and towns, but some are, are definitely, in my opinion, playing a little bit fast and loose. And I just want clarity about whether and what authority we have. And, and you know, the good news is that legislation has been introduced. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take or what's going to come of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that, that the legislature did uh, respond to our request to to at least process a piece of legislation to clarify this issue. And that's all you're looking for now. You don't just clarify how you feel about it. You just say, yeah. give me an idea of what I'm supposed yeah, to do. Yeah, I, I like clarity. I mean, like, I'm, right. I'm like most people, you know, ambiguity is, is challenging to deal with, so I prefer clarity. <laughs> should be in the media. Uh, never a good thing. Um, one of the things that's happening, I think, in industry-wide is there seems to be a real, people see an opportunity to get cash quick. And I say that 
from a perspective of uh, people who are in the investment world, people who are in the real estate world, people who are even trying to get into the retail world or even the medical world. Um, that being said, do you think that, have you heard any times where real estate owners, landlords, have boosted up what they're asking because it's a cannabis business. Anecdotally, yes, I've heard that. And does that, how's that bother, does that bother you? It, it, it bothers me uh, to some extent. Um, there, there's some justifiable reasons, perhaps, for for raising rates if you're a landlord. Um, you put yourself at some risk. I've, I've heard stories of people that have had their mortgages called mm-hmm. because they're using their property or, or subletting their property for, uh, for uh, cannabis. Um, you know, to the extent that someone's taking a greater risk, um, they can't get a better return. Up to the extent it's pure greed, it bothers me. Uh, right. But I, I said I've heard anecdotally, yeah. I don't really know the details. Um, and uh, once again, it's not something that we have regulatory authority over. So if the legislation gives you, if the legislature gives you that authority, is that something you think you can perhaps um, take advantage of? I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't I'm, want to I'm take a little, I'm of. a little leery of anything that is kind of us setting prices. Um, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't set retail prices. We don't set prices for guidelines. I think we set guidelines, and I think we can, you know, we can provide guidance. But, but um, we had this conversation um, on an unrelated topic at a commission, public commission meeting, I don't know, probably a year ago, about whether we should put limits on pricing for retailers, and we decided not to, um, you know, for two reasons. One is, uh, you know, I don't think we're in the position to kind of decide what's a fair price, and two is I believe in competition. I, I really do believe in competition. I believe that over time, people that provide a superior product at a reasonable price are going to be the ones that win. And I don't think they need regulatory assistance to, to do so. Isn't it amazing to you to hear all the different issues, whether it's the economy, supply and demand, legislature, checks and balances, mm-hmm. true democracy with the people speaking, right. saying, hey, we want this, now you or guys... We, or we don't want this. Or we don't want this. <laughs> Free speech, right? The elements of our world Mm-hmm. Touch just about every aspect of this industry right now. Yeah, no, this, this is, this is uh, you know, again, it's, it's why I took the job and it's why I, I am finding it very fulfilling because it, it's a very important, complex issue and it really matters. It really does matter. So, uh, you know, I, again, I'm, uh, I'm daunted and cognizant of my responsibility. Daunted by and cognizant of. That's great. Well, anyway, but when you guys were formed, Originally, the medical program was under the auspices and the governance of the Department of Public Health. Correct. And then everybody decided, you know what, now we got this Cannabis Commission, we're going to throw all this responsibility on them. You like to ask the legislature about their motives. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've got twice as much to worry about, including Mm -hmm. the medicinal side. But I'm going to give you credit, because also at that hearing that I was at, Mm -hmm. you were adamant about making sure that the medicinal inventory was protected at the 35% level, I believe. Um, that had to be, first of all, did you realize when you when they appointed you that you'd be getting the DPH stuff, getting the medical stuff? Yeah, I, you know, I, the story of how I got appointed is kind of funny, and I apologize if I'm going to make fun of the uh, treasurer here, but uh, the way I got appointed was I met the treasurer and her staff, we had a couple conversations, she said I need to introduce some other candidates, I'll be back to you. Um, she had a uh, legislative requirement to appoint me, or appoint uh, the chairman, by September 1st of 2017. She called me at home the Friday before the 1st and didn't ask me if I wanted to do the job, didn't say, what do you think? She said, on Tuesday, a press release is going on announcing your appointment, and on Wednesday, you're going to have a press conference. 
Congratulations. So, so I didn't have a lot of time to kind of plan or think through this, but that weekend between when she called me and when I had uh, uh, my first press conference, I spent the weekend reading the law very carefully. So I, I did know in the law that by December 31st of 2018 that we had to assume regulatory responsibility for medical marijuana from the Department of Public Health. So I knew about it from day one. And you were prepared for it? Uh, no, I, I would say I just knew about it. I spent, <laughs> yeah. you know, the commission, not just me, but the mm -hmm. entire commission spent most of the year, right. uh, among other things, planning for that transition. Yeah. And as far as you can tell, it's gone well? I mean, I've yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's seamless. I mean, I think from the most important part of it is, as I said, you know, uh, I don't think, I have not heard any stories of patient disruption. I have not heard any stories of patients having to wait in line, you know, when there's a co-located uh, adult use facility that opens, there's separate lines right. for, for the, um, um, the medical uh, patients. Um, there's been no issues about inventory availability that I've heard about. So I think on that level, I think uh, we've done a good job of, of, of our major objective, which is ensuring patient disruption. And of course you're also, um, you're, you have to keep your eye and kind of keep an eye on the, uh, the, the seed to sale process. Yes. And being able to tell where every seed came from and its DNA and its genealogy and all the seedology right. and all that stuff. And then that's the whole point of regulation is so that the those who have uh, use this product in whatever way, know exactly where it came from, mm -hmm. what the most of the chemical makeup of. Well, yeah, actually, you know, the, the part of the seed cell tracking um, that's, I think, most important is that it, 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 it I, I work it backwards, which is anything that is sold at retail, you know exactly where it came from, and you know that it's been tested by an independent testing lab, and that testing lab tells you not just potency, but, you know, are there pesticides, heavy metals, other chemicals involved, and so, you know, I think that, you know, one of the arguments for using the regulated industry rather than the black market um, is, you know, what you're getting. Right. It, it's safe tested product right and and when I found out last week at the summit lounge uh, workshop with Mark Hewitt from hole in the wall yeah. uh, cultivation I'll give yeah, a little no. plug was that you even as a home grower yes. you can pay to have your stuff Absolutely. tested. Absolutely. I didn't know that yeah. and of course it's just you know I mean, hey. you're not required to right because you're not selling it through a licensed retailer right or, licensed by our commission, but yes, absolutely, you can have it tested. Just to make sure that, you know, that what you did put in your garden or your yeah. home grow downstairs in the basement is, is proper. Uh, that, yeah. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to throw something at you here that I don't know. You probably haven't read my blog about I, I, I have it. It's okay. I, I, will conduct, I don't do social media. Good. Well, it's actually on my website, but that's, that's okay. okay. Anyway, I, I'll give you a copy of it. The story <laughs> was... Would you print it out in your newspapers? Yes, I will. I know how to... I like to hold the newspaper, too, right? I'm old school. Or, you know, similar. I'm not going to say the same age, but similar age. Because I know when you graduated high school at Brooklyn I'm 60, High. I'm 65. And I'm 61. And I'm a new guy. And look at this. We're having a nice conversation. So anyway. So far. In, that's right, 1937, my blog was about the wrong drug. 1937? Neither one of us was around. No. Right? right. But you do know that that was the uh, end of prohibition. Right. And they made alcohol legal. And it was my blog that said, what if it was 2016 mm -hmm. and the voters voted in alcohol legal for the first time? Right. What would the what would we be going through as a society here sure. in Massachusetts? Mm -hmm. And there are a ton of comparisons mm -hmm. between the two adult use products. Both mm -hmm. should be used in moderation, should be used responsibly. Yes. But as you know, there's differences between the two products. Yeah. Um, 
does that help at all when you're talking to people about this? Because I'm guessing there are still people out there, there's still a stigma about cannabis, because there's no been question. 80 years of propaganda out there, right. and we and all you know... Can't, you can't legislate or regulate a stigma, it takes time. It takes time. Um, so to overcome that, right. wouldn't it make sense to have some kind of a public service campaign talking about the benefits of cannabis in some capacity, and whether that is for the medicinal side or right. even the adult use? Yeah, I, you know, the, the liquor analogy is useful, but only to, to a certain right. extent. Um, and mm -hmm. the biggest breakdown of the analogy, in my opinion, is that marijuana is still federally illegal. And you know that creates all kinds of issues, but specifically to your question, um, it means that there's just not a lot of research about marijuana. Hospitals that get federal funding or universities that get federal funding typically won't do research on this. And so the medical, the medical benefits of marijuana I, I know anecdotally, I don't know scientifically because there is no science. So one of the things I think that's going to be a uh, particularly important uh, contribution that we can make as a commission is bring some science to this, uh, where we have a research license we're giving out to anybody who wants to do research around the product. Um, we are doing our own research. Um, some of the uh, excise tax that will come into the state because of uh, the retail sales uh, of, of um, adult use will be going to uh, do research or to fund research. So one of the things I'm hoping to do is bring some facts, not personally, but to have some facts brought to bear. Because right now you've got a very contentious issue. You had a 53 to 47% vote approving adult use back in 2016. Um, and that's close. And the, there's a lot of passion in this debate, not a lot of facts. And I'd love to see it be a more fact-driven debate, but right now there's just no science. Right. Interesting. Yet I believe that the um, the state of Israel is doing a great job with research. Are, yeah, not, yeah, not, yeah, they, we're the only state right now that's giving out research licenses, although Washington is planning on doing that. So I'm proud of that fact. But we're not alone. I mean, everybody's contributing to the research, and I'm certainly aware of what's going on in Israel. Yeah, they've done a great job. And I'm sure you know who Dr. Uma Donabal is. I've met her several times. Um, Dr. Uma explained to me once that there's actually been 29,000 studies done on cannabis because it was usually done by the substance abuse world looking for negative things. Is this addictive? What What are the effects of this? So while we sit here and we say, well, there really hasn't been a lot of research in science, there's been 29,000 studies of that well, versus only hundreds for opioids. Yeah. Um, I understand that. Um, I guess my point is that it's clear that marijuana's never killed anybody, um, nobody's ever died of an overdose. Um, so, so some of the things have been proven. Um, I, I would argue that the medical effects of marijuana, what um, what particular symptoms or diseases it can have an impact on, what is the impact, what's the proper dosing. Right. Um, I, I would I would argue that there is no um, established science on that. I think a lot of people are working on it, and I, I support it. Totally, because I really want to bring some facts to bear on this uh, debate. And anecdotally, I have heard from countless people who talk about how it's helped them, how it saved their lives. So right. I, I talk to returning veterans all the time who uh, go to the VA and get treated with opioids, and uh, you know they get their lives back literally by trying medical marijuana. So anecdotally, there's incredibly compelling stories out there. I just want to see the science support that because then I think it, it takes a lot of the contention out of the debate. Yeah. You mentioned the federal government and how it is still a, an illegal Schedule One drug. There's an incredible amount of lobbying going on right now in mm -hmm. D.C. Probably uh, the States Act, which is out right. there right now, is probably the most important piece of legislation mm -hmm. that actually might have a shot and moving it forward, I, I, but I you can't comment on anything until it happens, right? Um, 
Yeah, I can comment on the fact that I just don't know how Congress doesn't seem to be able to get its act together today. Even when there's strong consensus, there seems to be. So, right. you know, I, it certainly would make our jobs easier. I think I think a lot of things we're trying to accomplish in terms of diversity and social equity and justice becomes a lot easier if the federal prohibition is released. Certainly banking, which is a big challenge right now in the industry, or lack thereof, right. um, that becomes easier as the federal prohibitions are relaxed. So, so I, I'm rooting for it, um, but I have no influence on it, and right. nor do I have the ability to kind of forecast what's going to happen or when. Yeah, I wrote my opinion earlier this week, just for the record, just because I wanted to. And you can do that because, after all, it's a free country and it, we're a democracy. And I don't know if they'll ever read it or not. Um, Last night you sat next to Kyle Moon from the Sherman Lounge. Um, got to meet him last week for the first time. They have a private club that they've developed under the auspices of the existing laws. I give them a ton of credit for figuring out the right way sure. to do that. Sure. Moving forward, I also heard him say, this is not a good business model. Mm -hmm. um, you're now listening to the public talking about what they think social consumption clubs might look sure. like. Um, Obviously, having a resource like his mm -hmm. has to be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I know Kyle. I've met him several times. I've talked to him. Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting guy, and he has a lot to contribute to this conversation. And I'm not going to... I'd love to ask you a million questions about this, but I really don't know if you can talk about any specifics yet. I mean, are we going to see vaping lounges? Are we going to see smoking lounges outside? Are we going to have edibles available? I mean, all those questions are still out there, right? Yeah, and, and I'm not in a position to um, answer them, unfortunately. Right. Um, so we are involved in a process that just got started where we're soliciting public input. We uh, we had a public listening session in Springfield on Tuesday of this week. We had one in Boston on Wednesday of this week. Uh, we're going to have public meetings. We're going to discuss this amongst the commission. We'll develop draft regulations. We'll publish those and get public comments and go out and have public hearings. So we're in data gathering and learning mode and the whole point of it is to get input from as many people as can including Kyle but certainly not limited to Kyle and make our best judgment about the way this should work um, but the whole point of this process I don't know the answer if we knew the answer right we wouldn't go through this process but this is the right process in my opinion of getting input having public debates all right last question sure. just, as always I go along they used to call me mr. Phil for a reason and it wasn't PHIL okay the uh, social equity. I yes. mean, everybody who passed this law wants to see those who have been um, hurt by it the most have a shot at it. Sure. Yet realities have come in without a state money, and it takes sure. a lot of money to get this thing going. Sure. Well, if we move forward with the States Act and they make this thing, uh, the banks getting involved, yeah. is that not going to be the first thing that's going to happen? Is we're going to create something? Uh, I guess I, I don't look at it that way in, in, in the following respects. One is, um, as I said to you, I can't forecast what's going to happen with Congress. And so we, I, I think it would be a violation of our fiduciary responsibility to wait yeah. for that to happen because yeah. you know, know it's not. Right. Um, two is... Um, you know, the banks will come in, um, but I'm not sure how much lending they're going to do. I'm not, you know, so I don't think that's, I think that might be part of the solution, but I don't think it's going to be the entire solution. So I think it's, I, I think there's no silver bullet here. I think we've got to do a bunch of things, and I think we're working on them. Uh, it's just hard. It takes time. So I think that we can do some stuff in terms of prioritization, in terms of the training programs we put in place. I think that part of the solution is other state agencies that help inner city entrepreneurialism and, and economic development. they got to be part of it. 
cities and towns have to be part of it. I, I, I admire what Somerville is doing in terms of the way they're trying to prioritize and, and address this. Um, Councilor, uh, Councilwoman Janey on um, Boston City Council has proposed something. So I think part of the solution is cities and towns. And I, I do believe, and maybe this is you know my, my four years of private sector experience, a major part of the solution is going to come from the private sector. Um, you know, we have in our license applications the requirement that people tell us what their plan is to have a positive impact on these communities, um, and we take that seriously. And, and when you know it comes up for when licenses come up for renewal year, we're going to ask people, "Did you do what you said you were going to do?" So we, we take that seriously. I've had any number of conversations with different companies that are currently in the industry that want to do something here, um, and they want to you know create. Uh, there's um, accelerators being created. There's mentoring programs being created. There's all kinds of, of different um, ex um, experiments going on, if you will. I support them all because it's going to be part of the solution, but it's not one simple answer. It's all the things I just talked about, and they all have to work for us to crack this problem. But, you know, we're totally committed. None of us, none of the five commissioners would have taken this job unless they were committed to that outcome, um, and we're working really hard towards it, but it's hard and it's not going to happen overnight. Well, Stephen Hoffman, uh, you've been a pleasure not only uh, to talk with, but also to get to know you a little bit. My and and I, uh, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I wish you the best of luck, because thanks, I do know there's a lot of work to be done. There is a lot of work to be done, but thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you, and I want to thank Mary Ellis Gill and also Cedric Sinclair here at the Cannabis Commission, uh, Control Commission, to help us out to get Stephen Hoffman away from his very busy schedule to sit down with me for a few minutes. So that'll do it for another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And just a reminder, once again, it's a whole new world of weed out there. So if you use it, please use it responsibly. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first.